Good morning. Happy New Year. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 2. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the notes. And for the fifth Sunday, and the, God willing, final Sunday, I'd like to read, begin by reading, um, this section, John 2, 23 to 3, 21. John 2, 23 to 3, 21. We'll have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but... You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Lord God, as we conclude this section, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Birth life in dead stone hearts. 
Help us to understand the nature of what it means to believe savingly and have life. Help us to understand the causes of unbelief, where it comes from. Help us to see ourselves rightly. And Lord, may you be gracious with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at the very next verse, verse 22, I think it becomes apparent this this ends a section. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And I think it's important to view this as a section. Uh, Why we've looked at this and read this through five weeks in a row is precisely because John lays out a unit. And I think understanding the unit is critical to see the whole flow of it. If you turn back to the end of chapter two, you'll remember our first week here, we, we, we stopped and scratched our heads a little bit reading those verses at the end of chapter two. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, which we know from the prologue, verse 12 of chapter one, from chapter 318 is a good thing. I mean, we know in 1.12, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But Jesus doesn't respond that way here. Instead, he responds this way. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And I suggested to you that John is not a poor writer, such that he's contradicting himself, what he's written before and what he's about to write. You have to be a particularly poor writer to mess that up. Rather, I think he's intending for us to scratch our heads and go, what, what is insufficient? What is lacking? What is wrong with this faith? And then I suggested to you that the encounter with Nicodemus is set out to demonstrate, to explain that. That in Nicodemus, we see someone who, like the Jews in Jerusalem, has seen signs. And his opening confession is orthodox. It's true. It's good as far as it goes. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And we see Jesus knowing what's in Nicodemus, responding to him, telling him what he needs to hear. We know that Nicodemus will ultimately come to faith. Well, I think this morning, even as we've picked up some of the ingredients of what's lacking in Nicodemus' faith, what's insufficient, this this morning's text summarizes and encapsulates the whole thing. It, It lays it out most clearly. This morning, hopefully, we will clearly understand what saving faith is in John's gospel, and what is the nature of unbelief. And this is important for us, because I'm sure you have family members, loved ones, who have not bowed the knee to Christ, who have not turned in faith to the risen Lord. And you hear all sorts of reasons given for why not. This is God's record of why not. Why do not people believe? And why do some believe? That's all encapsulated here in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 3. So we have communion this morning. I'd like to begin quickly. Let's dive in. First, verse 19, an evaluation of the world's response to Christ. An evaluation of the world's response to Christ. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What we see here is first action and then reaction. The action is God's initiative. We've just begun last week and the week before looking at what God did. God sent his son into the world. We looked at this Christmas morning, not to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world through him might be saved. God loved the dark, sinful world in this way that he gave his son. God took the initiative, his enemies, those who defied him, those who rejected him, those who did not want him. He yet sent his son. He came. He was lifted up on a cross like the serpent in the wilderness. How will the world respond? And yet John has already laid out in his prologue how the world responds. Turn back to chapter one. What he sets up in chapter one, in the first few verses, is explained here clearly. Look at 1, 3 to 5. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Well, that's back in three, what we see here. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So first point, the the statement, this is the judgment. This is the summary verdict. This is the conclusion. This is the end of the matter. You think of a math equation. This is what the line, this is the number below the line. This is the solution. This is the result. This is the final state of things. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. God has taken such initiative in love, sending his son to die on a cross for this dark, sinful world. How did the world respond? He's already told us how the world responded. And here he says it again. It responded by hating the light. These verses serve as a summary verdict for this section, which also then I think will help explain why the clearest explanation for what is wrong with Nicodemus' insufficient faith. What's wrong with these people in Jerusalem? We're going to learn. We're going to see clearly the nature of unbelief and then the nature of saving faith. First, second point, sorry. In his incarnation, Christ shines in the darkness. This is a motif that's carried throughout the gospel. Jesus as life, Jesus as light. We saw that in chapter one. Let me read to you a few more passages making this explicitly clear. In in what sense is Jesus light? Well, listen to what Jesus says in 8, 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is light insofar as he gives illumination to see and to move and to live and to be, which is to suggest without his light, you, you can't rightly understand the world you live in. You and I cannot rightly make sense of or walk properly in this world. And without this light, we don't have the light of life. We're dead a little later in nine five, Jesus says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. In 11.9, Jesus says, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then at the end of the opening section of John's gospel, remember I suggested that chapters 1 through 12 are Jesus' public ministry. It's Jesus out and about in Judea, Cana, Israel. And then 13 through 17 is one night. It's the night before the crucifixion. It's Jesus' private ministry to the disciples. Here's how that public ministry closes. John 12, 35 to 36, Jesus said to them, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So the light has come into the world. This is the light is Christ. That's the first point. This light is Jesus. And he is a light insofar as he's life and he illuminates and he explains and we can make sense of this world and this life. But what is the reaction to this gracious gift of God? It's tragedy. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Three things I want to get from this. He's going to further elaborate this in verse 20. First, notice you cannot love both the darkness and the light. It's antithetical. It's either or. You, you can't say, well, I, I love darkness and light. The assumption is one or the other. We'll see that love for one produces hatred for the other. You're on one team or the other. You're a darkness lover, you're a light lover. You, you can't do both. You can't straddle the line. People love the darkness rather than the light. It's one or the other. Second, if this is talking about saving faith, and I believe it is, as we see where it comes down to in verse 21, whoever does, like comes to, whoever does what is true comes to the light. If we're, we're summarizing what goes on then, then it means then, and this is important, that saving faith is directly connected with what you love. Your affections, to use Jonathan Edwards' favorite term, are tied up in faith. Faith is not simply some abstract mental exercise. It's not some mental ascent. Yes, I think that's true. In that sense, the demons believe. They just hate God. I, I think demons probably have more orthodox theology than many of us. They're not confused about spiritual realities. They just hate the truth. And so one of the things that, that's part of saving faith or tied up with saving faith or correlative with saving faith is love and your affections and what you love. We're gonna see what you love it's going to directly affect what you entrust yourself to, what you believe in. They're not, separ they're, they're, they're not separable. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Saving faith is directly connected with what you love. So much so that Paul can say this in the close of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. You can't be a Christian and not love the Lord. You're under an anathema. You're under a curse. Third, those, and this is obvious, but I just want to spell it out because if you add up what he says here, I think it really makes sense of this whole passage. Those with evil deeds love the darkness. This is the judgment. I just come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because he begins to offer an explanation. Why, why would they love the darkness? Well, because their deeds are evil. Those with evil works, evil deeds, Love the darkness. This is, I think, explained later. Turn to John 8 quickly, where Jesus, I think, explains this relationship. Here, he'll use the analogy of slavery. He'll use the analogy of slavery. John 8, 31 to 35. In another one of the passages where John is making it clear there's faith and then there's faith. There's something you can call faith that is insufficient. So Jesus said, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth 
and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And I think the slavery is the affections. Those who practice sin love the sin. Those who practice whose deeds are evil love the darkness. Well, we get this with addiction. Those who take the drug love the drug. Those who, we, we get this, that what you give yourself to and what enslaves you, in some sense, you long for, you desire, you, you want, you value. And Jesus' description of slavery is in that sense. And that's the logic of our passage. They love the darkness. Why? Their deeds are dark. They're darkness addicts, for lack of a better term. Now, this brief initial explanation, their deeds are, those with evil deeds love the darkness, gets explained more fully in verse 20. Gets explained more fully in verse 20. Now we move from the evaluation of the world's response to an explanation for the world's rejection of Christ. And again, this is God's declaration on why men do not believe. And I think it stands in stark contrast to the reasons unbelievers give. I think most unbelievers want to present themselves as neutral when it comes to truth, and they want to present themselves as, I just haven't heard credible arguments. I've got these questions. And there's time for those discussions. Note what God says about the matter. If Jesus is speaking here, these are his words. If not, it's the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to privilege one member of the Trinity over another. This is God speaking. Here's God's declaration. And notice the all-inclusive language, for everyone. Any exceptions to that? No. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Let that sink in. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So now we've got a cause and an effect. First point, love of sin is the cause of hatred for Christ. Love of sin, love of, I'm putting sin in place of darkness, I think it's a fair swap. Love of darkness, love of evil deeds, love of sin is the cause here of hatred for Christ. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And if Christ is the light, then they hate Christ. And again, Hatred doesn't necessarily mean I want evil to happen to you. It just means I want nothing to do with you. Remember in the parable of the good Samaritan, loving your neighbors yourself is the Samaritan stopping, helping the man by the side of the road. In contrast to that, the Levite and the priest just walk by. They can't be bothered. It's, it's not that everyone is angry at, hates the light in that sense. They want nothing to do with it. Now, I think if you press the point, eventually they will cry out, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. I mean, if you, if you press him on the matter. But everyone who does wicked things hates, that is an astounding declaration. And it's a very different answer than what most unbelievers give for why they don't believe in the gospel. Love of sin is the cause of hatred for Christ. Second, if everyone who does wicked things hates the light, how many people do wicked things? How big is this group that we're talking about here? The human race. The human race. This, is, this is everybody. 
Well, except, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But every, so that, what that means then is by nature, it is natural, because we're born sinners, right? We don't get born and become sinners. We come into this world hardwired sinners, which means we come into this world hardwired hating the light. By nature, all men hate the light and love the darkness. Do you begin to see how this might explain why Jesus insists you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You see how, you see how this makes sense of that? What, what shocked Nicodemus, who is advanced in religion, who is a ruler of the Jews, who is the teacher of Israel, is this notion that you and I are dependent on a work of God in our heart before we can even enter into the kingdom. But it makes sense if all of us come into this world by nature hating the light. You see, people aren't neutral. They're not morally neutral, and they're not neutral in regards to the truth. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. Why? And what, 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 sorry, what consequence does that bear? And they do not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Well, if you'll grant me that everyone does evil things, then I think this verse says, everybody hates the light, and everybody doesn't come to the light. You got the depravity of man. You've got the foundation for statements that Jesus makes later in this gospel, like in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not because something's stopping them. In fact, I'd argue it's precisely because you're free to do what you want that you will follow your desires. And your desires, naturally, are, I hate the light, get me away from the light. Precisely because people can do what they want, they don't come. This is... This is the justification, the explanation for Jesus' radical statements that no amount of advancement in religion, no amount of advancement in the society, no amount of prestige can overcome the hard issue of being alienated with God. It does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Next, love of darkness then prevents you from coming to Christ. Just, just trying to follow the logic here. Everyone who does wicked things, which is the group that we've agreed includes everybody, hates the light, and that same group does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So love of darkness is what prevents. What stops people from coming to Christ? Their own love of darkness. That's what stops them. What stops you from believing? You. Me. Love of darkness prevents you from coming to Christ. And then that, I think that explains in part that a refusal to repent of your sin then is the cause of unbelief. And I don't think I'm stretching things. If what stops me from turning to Christ in faith is I love my darkness, I love my sin, and repentance is defined as a turning from and to, then the reason I won't turn to Christ is I won't repent, I won't give up what I love, I don't give up my treasure my autonomy, my self-rule, my sin. If you've ever wondered why sometimes the gospel is laid out as believe, and sometimes in the book of Acts, Paul, repent and believe. Other times it's just repent. And you say, well, which one is it? We are justified by faith. John 3.16 is clear. Each and everyone believing is not condemned but has life. But what stops people from believing? What prevents them from believing? They love their darkness and they won't give it up. 
In that light, doesn't it make sense how the gospel can in other places be? Repent and believe. There is no, in other words, saving faith that's still prizing and treasuring sin. That's what stops people from coming. The reason your children, your friends, your parents, your neighbors, the reason ultimately why they won't come to Christ is they love something more than him. It's not fundamentally an intellectual issue. It's an ethical issue. Belief and unbelief are ethical categories. And no one's neutral. No one's neutral. The reason they don't come is they don't want their works to be exposed. I I love my darkness, and I don't want it to be seen as corrupt and ugly. I'd rather preserve my self-righteousness. I'd rather preserve my illusion than have it be exposed. You've seen this when you, if you have a friend who's struggling with an addiction, with slavery to alcohol or drugs, and they, they want to avoid talking about it because they don't want to think it's as bad as it is. They want, want to not come into the light and see the, the, the pravity, the brokenness of their situation. And so to justify themselves and to maintain their life and their lifestyle, they'll resist and push. That's the same type of thing going on here. You're not interested in light if you want to pretend the darkness isn't as dark as it is. If you don't want to pretend that your sin is as sinful as it is, if you don't want to pretend that your brokenness is not as broken as it is, then you don't want light. You're looking for Jesus like the, co- like the robbers are looking for the police. Or in Romans 1, this is what Paul speaks when he says, men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the nature of unbelief. A love of evil, a love of sin. Now thankfully, if this, if apart from God's further initiative, this would damn the entire human race. I mean, if, if there was no verse 21, we'd simply have men are evil, God sent his son, and nobody wanted them because everyone did evil, everyone hated the light, everyone loved the darkness, game over, the human race is condemned. Look at this glorious but, the exception of those who do come to Christ, the exception of those who do come to Christ. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, so far, we've been looking at saving faith negatively, apophatically, like what it's not. Positively now, three things. Saving faith loves Christ and his light. You're coming to the light, presumably because you no longer hate the light. We saw in a... 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Saving faith loves Christ and his light. Which means, point two, saving faith turns from darkness to light. This is is how Paul preaches the gospel in Acts. Acts 26, 17 to 18, announcing how the Lord commissioned him. He said, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that's repentance, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saving faith loves Christ in his light. Saving faith turns from darkness to light. This is the rationale of 1 John 1. 1 John 1, this is the message we have heard from him and delivered to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let me finish turning there, lest I misquote it. There we go. 
If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Believers are marked, faith is marked by walking in light. Third, saving faith believes and acts upon the truth. Saving faith believes and acts upon the truth. Notice the phrase here, whoever does what is true or literally is doing truth. He's a truther or she. Well, the assumption in this passage is what you believe and what you entrust yourself to affects what you do. You want to see that clearly? Look at the last verse in chapter 3. Look at 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, what? That contrast only makes sense if the assumption is what you believe affects what you do. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, this person who comes to Christ has a new set of deeds, a new set of actions, a new walk. They have light, and now consequently being able to see the world around them, they're living differently. That's the assumption. Saving faith believes and acts upon the truth. This is the rationale Jesus uses when he speaks to the apostles in the upper room. John 14, 21 to 23, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and I will come to him and make our home with him. So saving faith loves Christ and his light because it comes to him. Saving faith, therefore, turns from darkness to light. And those who come to Christ savingly are described as those who do perform, act out the truth. Saving faith believes and acts upon the truth. You want a simple definition of what would you say saving faith is? Confidence and trust in the personal work of Christ such that you're willing to act upon it. That's how I define saving truth. I want to distinguish the works from faith, but... If what you claim to have called faith doesn't actually produce works, if it doesn't actually work, then it's dead. And we know what James says about that. Such that we can describe people who come to Christ as doers of the truth. That's what characterizes them. Which then brings us to the the obvious question, how then, if all people are born loving the darkness rather than the light, and if it's true that if you love the darkness, you hate the light and don't come to it, then how are these people who come to the light? How does that happen? How do you stop loving what you love and stop hating what you hate? Now, one answer is you choose to do it. and, And I wish sanctification were that easy. I wish I could just choose to stop loving the praise of man. I wish I could choose to stop loving myself as much as I do. Don't you? Just use your free will and stop liking sin. No. You and I know the the sense of almost powerlessness when you love something, when you desire something, when you value something. It draws you. I didn't choose to love my children. I just did. So how 
Can somebody born into this world with evil deeds who loves the darkness get out of that lane, change, and become someone who does the truth and comes to Christ? This, this again, gets back to Jesus' statement about the wind blows where he wishes. And this statement makes it clear here. Why, why do they come to Christ? That it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You must be born again to see the kingdom you must be born again to enter the kingdom, and you are powerless to make that happen. The Spirit blows where he wishes. He births where he wishes. You don't see where he goes or he comes from, but you hear a sound when he blows by. That message of helplessness, which doesn't eliminate our culpability, it actually establishes it. You and I are so bad that we love our sin so much that unless the Spirit of God does a work in our hearts, we will cling to it and treasure it and prize it and shun the light. Well, praise God, he has taken even more initiative. A blank here, saving faith is the gift and work of God. You, you do truly believe, I believe no one can believe for you but you can't believe unless you're born again we, we talked about how safe regeneration being born of the spirit is the cause not the effect the cause of faith you and if you are here today believing in christ it's because the spirit gave you a new heart or to use other imagery of jesus blessed are you because you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear or to use another image, either because the foreskin of your heart was circumcised or because the veil was removed. There's a number of biblical metaphors for this, but all of them speak to God's sovereign work. Saving faith is the gift and work of God. That's, that's what Jesus says to Nicodemus, and that was precisely the issue Nicodemus tripped over. What do you mean? I'm helpless for God to do a work in me. I've worked all my life at being a Pharisee, at being religious, at being good. I've achieved social status. I'm the teacher in Israel. Yeah, and you must be born again if you're even going to see the kingdom of God. See, see if we'll recognize how deep the sickness goes, we recognize and rejoice in this state and the size of the cure. Finally, saving faith seeks for God to receive glory in salvation. See, if this is true, then when someone is birthed and comes to faith, they don't get to say, I was smart enough. I was good enough. I put the pieces together better than the other guy. No, they get to say, praise God, his spirit birthed life in my heart. Praise God, he removed the veil. Praise God, he sent his spirit who convicted me of sin and righteousness and judgment. Turn, we got time, turn to Ezekiel 36. When Jesus talks about the new birth and chastises Nicodemus for not following with him, it's because he's speaking about an Old Testament passage. You want to know what being born again means? You want to know what being born of water and the spirit means? It's Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 25, Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You might even say, cause you to do the truth. And be careful to obey my rules. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's what the spirit does when he births life in the heart. So back to John 3, before we do our time of communion. Let me, let me try to summarize this up. A faith that is only willing to recognize Jesus as a teacher, a worker of miracles, someone from God, is insufficient. A faith that's unwilling to recognize your need, my need, radical need of help, that thinks I'm good enough that when I choose to, I'll turn and I can weigh the evidence and I can size things up and I can figure it out. No, no. I have too much of a bias in the matter. I, I was helpless to believe until God's spirit worked in my heart. And so are you, and so are your family, and your loved ones, and your neighbors, which is good news, because we can beseech the Lord in prayer to move and to work. We can pray, God, save my children. But it's humbling. It also means if you're here today and, and you have not committed yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you may have questions, you may have challenges. That, that understand, if, if, if Jesus is to be taken seriously, if God's word is true, there's also, and fundamentally, this issue of slavery, of, of love and affections and commitment to sin and darkness, to self-rule and autonomy. But the reason men and women don't believe is not that we haven't made a good enough argument. You remember Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, told them the parable of Lazarus and Abraham, right? And, and, Abra I mean, and the rich man, Lazarus, and the rich man goes to torment and he pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back. And Abraham, what does he say? He says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And the, the rich man says, no, but if someone goes back from the dead, they will believe. What does Abraham say? If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. Because the fundamental crux issue of unbelief is not credulity and evidence. Well, there is evidence, and our faith is credible, but that's not the fundamental bedrock reason people don't believe. It's ethical and moral. That, that's the summary here. That's the summary in Romans 1. And so if you're sitting on the fence, so to speak, understand ultimately that means you're in the darkness-loving lane. And also realize, as you consider that, that you need God to do a work in your heart, that you're committed to darkness rather than light. And there will be no life or salvation while that remains. Now praise God for birthing so many in this room. Praise God that his spirit has gone beyond just sending his son, but also granting life, drawing, calling us. So we give him the glory. I'm gonna close in prayer. We'll prepare for a time of communion. Lord God, we thank you that you have done so much more than we deserve. Not only were we your enemies, and not only while we were your enemies did you not send your son for us, you did that. But we've learned that if that were all you had done, as, as, as great of a gift as that is, 
None of us would be saved. None of us would love the light or come to it. By nature, we hate the light and don't come to it. But not only have you sent your son, but you have sent your spirit. And your spirit has convicted us and opened our eyes and unstopped our ears and given us hearts of flesh. And so, Lord, from the beginning to the end, every bit of it, we give you the praise and the glory that salvation is of God and no other. In Jesus' name, amen.